Welcome to The Brian Buffini Show, where we explore the mindsets, motivation, and methodologies of success. Here's your host, Brian Buffini. Well, the top of the morning to you, and welcome to The Brian Buffini Show. You know, for the past 20 years, I've been out presenting and speaking all over the world, and I've not only presented at events where there's been other really good speakers, but also our own events that we put on at Buffini Company, we've put on thousands of them. We bring in keynote speakers, and we've had from politicians to entertainment to sports to world leaders, uh, you name it. And a couple of years ago, I had a great privilege of meeting someone who's become a good friend, and her name is Diana Nyad, and she is an inspirational person. She has an inspirational story. And what's even more important to an Irishman, she tells it in a great way. She's entertaining. She's informative. But this is really going to be a boost for you today. Diana is well known as one of the greatest long-distance swimmers of all time. She came to notoriety as a young woman in 1978. She swam around Manhattan Island, and no one had ever done that before. And she became a regular guest on the Johnny Carson show. Eventually, uh, got involved in broadcasting herself. She made four attempts to swim from Cuba to Florida. It's over 100 miles, very, very tough currents, stinging jellyfish, uh, shark-infested water, all kinds of issues. And on the fifth time, she successfully completed this at the age of 64, by the way. So remarkable, inspirational person. She has a great story to tell. She's spoken at a number of our events over the years. Absolutely one of the crowd's favorite. You're going to hear her in a live presentation she gave just a short time ago. Absolutely fabulous. Very entertaining. Powerful woman. Powerful message. I hope this encourages you as much as it has me and all of our members who've been blessed to hear. Enjoy the great Diana Nyad. Almost always... I sit backstage where the CEO is on stage and I'm going to follow him or her and I say to myself, this is a nightmare. <laughs> if these people have been trouble getting some sleep lately, this is going to do the trick. And thank goodness I'm going to follow this guy because no matter what I do, it's going to be a huge rousing success. But Brian Buffini's different. He's warm, he's deep, he's a human being, he's fun, and he cares. And now you're the speaker following him sitting backstage saying, holy sh, how am I going to stay up with this? <laughs> you know, for me, I was lucky. Empowerment started early. I had a father who was dramatic, theatrical, he was a Greek Egyptian who spoke in a very thick accent, buzzing Z's and rolling R's. He was all in all the time. Every day was an exaltation for Aristotle Zenith Nyad. He would wake us up at 3 o'clock in the morning and he would say, I have just been to the ocean. It is a Rembrandt painting. You will not believe it. It will change your lives. Let's get up. We need to go right away. We said, 
Dad, we have school in three hours. We have got to sleep. I am telling you now, sleep is overrated. Get up. Twenty minutes later, the whole family is strolling along the ocean. The golden light from our feet in the waters all the way out to the horizon. It was a Rembrandt painting. It changed our lives. So the day I turned five, my father called me into the den. And over here on the desk, he had opened Webster's unabridged big fat dictionary. And he was standing with his hands on the page, open page. And he called to me with tears standing in his eyes. Darling, you are coming here. I have been waiting for this day for you to turn five. Because today is the day you will understand the most important thing I will ever tell you. Come here, Dali, come here. Your name, the name of my people, it is in the important book. It is in the bold black and white of the dictionary. Tomorrow you will go to your little preschool and you will ask your little friends, is their name in the dictionary? And they will tell you no. You are the only one. Come here, darling. I'm going to read for you. Naiad. In Greek mythology, my people. The nymphs that swam in the lake, river, ocean, and fountain to protect for the gods. And definition number two, the special one. This one is for you, darling. Are you listening to me, darling? Naiad. Girl or woman champion swimmer. Oh my God, this is your destiny, darling. Well... I didn't know what a swimmer was. I was only five. <laughs> but you know the word I heard that day? Was champion. And I started walking around with my shoulders just a little bit taller. And it wasn't too long after that, elementary school, I had a geography teacher who was an ex-Olympic swimmer himself, the most charismatic person you'd ever want to meet, unless you knew Brian Buffini. And he said that any kid who came out for the swim team would get an A in geography. And I have found out that a lot of athletic careers started that way. <laughs> I was at the pool deck the next day. He had us all swimming up and down. He wanted to see what he had. And I finished in this lane over here after about 15 minutes. And he was standing over the lane. And he yelled down, hey, kid, hey, kid, what's your name again? I said, Nyad. He said, Nyad, you're going to be the best swimmer in the world. And that's all any kid needs. And so I was a little swimmer. 4.30 in the morning, every morning, never an alarm clock needed. A thousand sit-ups every night, never 999. Elbow to knee, every single one. I thirsted to the immersion, literally, of it all. And one day, the Cuban Revolution had just broken out. 
And overnight, thousands of Cubans flooded into my hometown, Fort Lauderdale, Florida. We were eating Cuban food. We were flying the Cuban flag. We were doing the salsa in their living rooms. May I take an aside to say that I am shocked after learning the salsa at that young age not to have done better on Dancing with the Stars. Yeah, just saying, just saying. And I was standing on the beach at that time with my mother, who was French and spoke in just as thick an accent as my father. So you know already it's entertaining to grow up in a home where you have to ask your parents to repeat themselves all the time to see what they're saying. And I said to mom, mom, where is it? Where's Cuba? We had such a huge mystique about Cuba. A lot of us, haven't we? And I said, I, I can't see it. I know it's right out there somewhere. And she said, okay, come here. I'm going to show you. <laughs> Lift up your arms this way. No, 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 no. Over this way, more. There. It's right there. As a matter of fact, it is so close that you could almost swim there. And that wasn't really the day of the concrete dream. But I'll tell you. It was a little flutter in the back of the imagination somewhere. Age 12, my father called me back into that same den. And now he's agitated. He's walking around with his hands behind his back. The veins are sticking up on his neck. I said, Dad, what is wrong with you? And he said, okay, first of all, I make big mistake when I show you this dictionary. Now you are fanatic. I mean, a few days a year, but you was 4.30 in the morning every day, Christmas Day included. You don't know your brother and sister anymore. You don't go to church on Sunday. You are eating some crazy place they call the training table. We don't see you in our house for dinner. You have muscles like a football player. Darling, your hair is green. <laughs> I said, that's right, Dad. I am a fanatic. And you know what, Dad? That's how people get ahead in life. They're fanatics. And one day, I am going to stand on the podium and bow my head at the Olympic Games and receive a medal for the United States of America. You know why, Dad? Because I'm a fanatic. And you know, Dad, I am, I'm really happy we had this little talk. <laughs> Because I feel you don't understand me. When I say... I need to go to bed at 8.30 because I have a very early morning call. Dad, I mean, all of you in the house need to go to bed at 8.30. <laughs> He said, oh, no, I, I do understand. Your mother and I, we have been talking, and um, we need to tell you that we are, well, we are, we are very afraid of you. <laughs> We wish you all the luck in the world. We really do. But today, we are going to give you a key to the house because we cannot live like this anymore. Age 14, the state meet was at our pool. It was a big deal. I went over to Coach's house in between the prelims and the finals. My same coach who said, you're going to be the best in the world. And we were all part of Coach's family. We babysat for his kids. We played football on the beach on Sundays and then went over to Coach's house for a barbecue, watched the Dolphins games. 
I don't know if it was three minutes. Was it four minutes? It was quick. It was violent. And it was humiliating. I lost that night. First time at the state meet in two years. Kids on my team thought I was coming down with the flu. And our team won. And they were over on the other side of the pool getting on their sweats, going out for pizza and Cokes. Usually I'd be the leader right there in the thick of the action. But not this night. I went down into the diving well and I went 16 feet to the bottom. And I am telling you, I yelled so loud. Had I been above water, you could have heard me from Fort Lauderdale to San Diego. And I screamed, no, this is not going to ruin my life. The Olympic trials came a little too quickly for me. I'll never forget walking down that pool deck toward that 100-meter backstroke. Three are going on to the elite race, Mexico City, Olympic Games. Five are going on to the rest of their lives. And I was walking down 20 minutes before the race with the weight of the world on my shoulders. My speed had tapered from two years before. My chances were so unlikely. And I was filled with my parents, what they had sacrificed, my brother and sister, their dreams were never as big as mine, so we always were catering to what I needed. The coach, you know how the epidemic goes. It may start with a violent molestation, and then it turns into a terrifying, embarrassing coercion that you feel you have no way out from. I'm always wondering where we garner our philosophies of life from. At the tough moment, was it your grandmother who came to you and had those pearls of wisdom that you always lived by ever since getting through that moment? Well, for me, oddly enough, my words of wisdom for life came to me when I was a teenager, and they came from another teenager, Suzanne, with her own chances in the 100-meter butterfly came to me at this moment and shook me. And she said, what is going on? You look like you're in a daze. This is the most important race of your career, and you're not laser-focused. What are you thinking about? And I started in with the, the, the sit-ups and the sacrifices. and I, mean, I didn't even smoke pot in the parking lot in high school. That's how deep the sacrifices ran. And I started in with, you know, the, what I've been through. And she said, stop it, stop it. You know that's not how it works. You yourself gave us that beautiful speech in the bleachers a couple of months ago. Remember, we're sitting there and you told us, there's a beautiful star. It's your dream. It's in your soul. And it inspires you so much, even though it may be untouchable, unreachable, impossible, that you dig down with all that's in you, month by month and year by year, with focus and with discipline. And one day, 
You may not actually touch that star of yours, but by then, you're up in the heavens playing in rarefied air. Remember, you told us that. You take the big picture in the dream and you tuck it away while you get down to work toward it. She said, you get what I mean. Remember, we just saw that documentary on the great tennis player, Billie Jean King. Billie Jean says when she goes to Wimbledon, she doesn't march over and look at the draw for the two weeks and say, oh yeah, yeah, I remember, uh, I've heard that her, uh, her second serves improved a lot. If I get to playing her in the quarters, no. Billie Jean says she's like a cheetah on the hunt. When she steps onto the grass of Wimbledon, she has no idea who the chair umpire is, what the weather forecast is. She's not playing the match, the point. Billie Jean, the first Zen athlete, is not even playing the ball. She's playing the fuzz on the ball. And as the ball comes over, cheetah on the hunt, she tracks it down. She steps in and hits the most perfect backhand that's ever been hit. If the ball comes back, There's Billie Jean at the net hitting her signature overhead, and two weeks later, she's walking around with the Wimbledon trophy above her head, which, by the way, she did 20 times. Yes, Billie Jean. So my friend says, you get what I mean. It's the moment. Now look at here. It's not as poetic as the fuzz on the tennis ball, but I want you to look at this little sliver of your pinky fingernail, this little half moon right here. And I'll tell you why. Because tonight, that race of yours, it's going to be won and lost by that amount. And I'm telling you something. I needed this girl right now. I was under her spell. All those thousands of people on the pool deck, they virtually disappeared. And she and I were on the deck like this. I said, yeah, I see it. She said, all right, I'm asking you. How long does it take you in the 100-meter backstroke to swim that half-moon distance? And I said, well, okay, that's going to take a thousandth of a second. She said, no, it's not. Do the math. It's going to take a lot less than that. What's it going to take? I said, okay, 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 you're right, you're right. Say it's going to take a thousandth of a thousandth of a second. She said, that's it. So why don't you march up to those blocks? Why don't you blast off with the shoulders that you've built for the last 10 years? Swim with the heart that's unique to you. And when you touch that wall, don't look up at the scoreboard. Close your eyes, close your fists and say, I couldn't have done it a fingernail faster. She said, I guarantee you, no matter what happens, you say it, you mean it, all will be all right. And I marched up there with a vision, don't leave this much behind. And I blasted off with my powerful shoulders and my heart. And when I touched that wall, I had no idea if I was first or eighth or where in between. And I closed my eyes, I closed my fists, I said it and I meant it. I couldn't have done it a fingernail faster. And I took a deep breath and looked up at the scoreboard. And I was sixth. And this kid didn't go to Mexico City. And the words of wisdom of that teenage girl ran through every fiber in my body. I went over and shook hands with the three girls who were moving on. I went into the showers and I thought for sure a a flood of tears would come after 10 years of believing. But they didn't. 
I stood there tall and proud. And you know why? Because it wasn't just that 100 meters that night. It was the 10 years. It was the 4.30 in the morning. Never slept in once. It was the 1,000 sit-ups. And I walked out of the locker room that day, a young person with a philosophy. Every day of my life, no matter what I do, succeed or not, not a fingernail better, no regrets. And then life happened. Yeah, thank you. There was college and graduate school and the pursuit of happiness and love. And a friend came to me and said, you know, there is a sport of marathon swimming. And a lot of them are ex-Olympic champion sprinters who now the earth is four-fifths water. And these people go from the Bay of Naples in Italy to the swims in the ocean Argentina. And they stand on a shore. A gun goes off. It's usually pretty cold. It's usually long, rough waters. There's just a degree of masochism to it. And that's why I thought it might appeal to you. Sure enough, I found myself standing on the shore of Lake Ontario, which was 48 degrees that day. Yeah, so you know Lake Ontario. And I knew that the sport was men and women together, but until you're standing there and you see the muscular Egyptian guys getting greased down over here, and I had just been greased in 10 pounds of wool fat lanolin, you know, that's a singular experience unto itself. (laughs) You could just go home and tell people you did that. I see the lanky, muscular Argentine guys over here, and I'm really realizing for the first time that this is going to be a lot of bumping. That grease is going to wear off quickly, and I felt the water. It is icy. And the women's world champion at the time, Judith Denage from Holland, who had been a butterflyer in the Mexico City Games, picked this moment, just minutes before this race, to swagger across the beach and introduce herself to me. Now, of course... The beach didn't tremble when she walked. It just seemed that way. And when she got up to me, she took an index finger and she jabbed it on the grease of my chest and jabbed it with every syllable. I was so intimidated, I just stood there and I had a bruise this big for a month. And she said, I hear you're very good swimmer. Well, you're not going to beat me. And she went swaggering off. And I will tell you now, the beach trembled when she walked. Judith was 6'1", 185 pounds. She looked more like a tight end than a swimmer. And I said to my coach, I'm not going in. These people are animals. And the gun went off, and I went running down into the water, swearing in Arabic with the Egyptians. And I got myself a little bit of clear water after a while. And you're allowed to swim over to your escort boat. And your handlers are there with your food and crises management. But you can never touch the boat. And uh, I was learning during the day, as cold as I was, that the great Marwan Ghazawi had dropped out or this one had dropped back. Occasionally, I'd look as I was swimming and a boat would go by with a swimmer who had quit. And they had a blanket all wrapped around them. And I'd look at them and go... Ooh, that blanket looks good. (laughs) But I didn't quit. And those were a long, cold 18 hours and 20 minutes. 
and I finished third among the 444 men and first among the women that day. Thank you. You know, and at the big banquet they had a couple nights later, Judith Denige announced her retirement from the entire sport. That's heavy when you can push somebody out of the sport altogether, you know. But when I was finished, I was taken to the University of Toronto Hospital. I was cold, core temperature was low, and my group had taken me into a corner of the ER and put me on a chair and wrapped me in a mylar blanket. And I was just sitting there shivering, waiting for them to check me in. And right at that moment, a young man was wheeled in on a gurney, and he was in pain. He was yelling out and grimacing, and he was wheeled over and parked, so our faces were about this far apart, and his people went to check him in. I think just to take his mind off his pain, he asked me what I was doing in there. And I was shivering, and I said, I swam across Lake Ontario, and it took me 18 hours. I'm Cold, and he said, "Why the hell did you do that?" <laughs> and you know, we got chatting, and uh, I came to find out he was in a cigarette boat accident on Lake Ontario that day. And eventually, I found out that he broke his pelvis, most of his ribs his clavicle, his jaw, and had internal bleeding. So I I had similar questions for him. (laughs) But the interesting thing about it was, he said that he loved being at the wheel of his boat because the adrenaline was so fierce flowing through him that he never felt that alive, that alert, that awake that even a fraction of a mistake could mean a fatal accident. And he wished he could take some of that spirit and that adrenaline over to the rest of his life. But he said to me, but what you do is so long-suffering. I really mean it. Why? And I said, well, you know, that was my first marathon swim, but I'll tell you what I liked about it, and I think I'm going to do some more of them. It was like a microcosm of life over 18 hours, You know how it is. You feel great. You got the tiger by the tail. Everything's going your way. You can notch off the ledger of life, and it's all got a pretty good check next to it. And then the unexpected happens, and you're down, and you're fighting, and you don't know how you're going to get out, and the valleys are deep. And a friend, your team, comes to you, and you mastermind your way up the side of that next hill until you're up at the top of another mountain. And I said, that's what that day was like. I was down, I was in the valleys, and I believed in myself, and I loved coming to the other shore and being a person who didn't quit. And this young man went off to the rest of his life chasing days of being an adrenaline junkie, And I went off my way, wanting very much to fulfill the inspiration of being a person who does not give up. So most of that decade, my 20s, I spent swimming, you know, the the Bay of Naples and Argentina and all those other swims. But 
it was always lurking somewhere in the back of my mind, Cuba. People had first tried to swim across Cuba in 1950. The best swimmers we know, male, female, young, strong. It's the Mount Everest of the world's oceans. There is a reason nobody had ever done it. If we were today to spread out the nautical charts of the Earth's surface here, we couldn't find an equatorial Earth where it's warm enough to do something that long. We couldn't find Mother Nature raging on steroids, as she does, between the island of Cuba and the shores of Florida. It is the Gulf Stream catapulting out of the Yucatan Channel and flowing hard due east right above Cuba when you're trying to swim due north at four to five times slower a speed than that Gulf Stream. And that Gulf Stream takes up most of the band between the two countries. And there are swirling eddies and counter currents and all kinds of things you can't even predict or see from space telemetry. You just deal with them as you get into them. The weather is so unpredictable, you can go down to the docks of Havana and put your tongue out any day of the year and feel a little bit of a crunch and you think that it's the salt from the salt vapor. It's not. It's the sands of the Sahara Desert that have been blowing 7,000 miles as they come across with no interruption the Atlantic Ocean and right through the Florida Straits and almost every day of the year they are coming from the east to the west and that stream is going from the west to the east and when the two of them bump up against each other the peaks are nasty out there there are very few days a year one or two days a month and a swimmer needs two to three to four to get over there get ready wait for the weather and get going and then have your time to make it it's everything against you most people have put that swim at under two percent possibility have i mentioned the sharks yet well, these are the oceanic white tips, the bull sharks, the tigers, the lemons. These are aggressive, dangerous animals. And even though next to me there are two kayaks that have shark shields, they create an elliptical field of electricity underneath. And it's a general rule that bothers the sensitive snout of the shark. If that shark's 50 miles offshore and is a loner, rogue, and hasn't eaten in a week or two, that electricity means nothing. They come zipping right up through there and get what they want. One of the shark experts said to me, you know, basically you can consider yourself when you're out there kind of a slow-moving, low-frequency vibration on the surface dinner bell. Um, so I had a team. I had a team of divers, shark experts. They swim with these animals every day. But we go in the pitch of night. It's pitch, pitch, pitch black unless you're lucky to have some moonlight because lights attract jellyfish, baitfish, then the sharks. And when you're out there in the pitch of black, how will I ever thank these guys to put my life in front of theirs with no lethal gear, no spear guns, no nothing, just pipes of PVC. They get down under me at night. They can't ever touch me, but they look for the pairs of translucent eyes of the predators below, and they're there. And when one comes too close to me and is acting with an arched back or flaring the teeth, my guys touch them, poke them, are aggressive with them, move them out until they're not interested anymore. As I say, 
How will I ever thank my guys? The box jellyfish emits the most potent venom on Earth, in or out of the ocean. This is a 600 million year old animal that has developed a venom to a killing perfection. More people have died from the box jellyfish than have from shark attacks in the history of mankind. A small tentacle, the length of your forearm from here, the wrist just up to your elbow, carries with it 300,000 harpoons. And when that tentacle whips to the skin, those harpoons fire instantaneously that venom into your central nervous system and your cardiovascular system and you feel the paralysis. Your lungs go down to three breaths a minute and you know you're not going to last long at that. When I was stung the first dusk of 2011, I went into anaphylactic shock and I think honestly, it was will alone that allowed me to swim another 24 hours debilitated, injured, weak, not going much of anywhere too fast, but not giving up until dusk the next night. Swam through that night as well and into the next day, and by then we had been dragged so far east toward the Bahamas that Florida was no longer reachable. Picture, you're trying to swim due north, the swim I did was 111 miles, but the shortest distance is 103, from Havana to Key West, right like this due north. This stream, the Gulf Stream, is coming out here and it's going 4.5 to 5.5 miles an hour this way. It's going due east, and Florida's up here, the Keys, and then the body of Florida starts curving away to the north. So every time you're dragged east a little bit this way, that distance is no longer 103, now you're at 120. Now you're dragged a little more this way, and the coast of Florida becomes truly an untenable distance. Sensory deprivation is an issue for the few of us who do these ultra swims. I have such a high regard for all of Earth's great adventurers, the extreme alpine climbers, the, the people who run across the Kalahari Desert and trek across Antarctica. But Ed Vestiers is a friend of mine. Ed is uh, the man who has climbed Mount Everest more than anybody else, the pure way, without bottled oxygen. And Ed says, when he gets above 26,000 feet, that he can only take a step of literally a couple of inches like this, and that movement is so egregiously demanding of his lungs that he has to stand there and take 25 profound breaths before he's composed enough to take a step of another couple of inches. Well, I don't know what it's like at the top of the world, but I'm one of the few who knows what it's like way out in the ocean. And the unique thing for the few of us who have been out there is sensory deprivation. Unlike a climber or a runner or a cyclist, your senses are deadened and gone. I wear a tight, tight cap to try to keep the heat in the head, and I don't hear much at all. A loud, loud police whistle or a foghorn is the only thing that might come through. I don't see much. I've got fogged over goggles, and I'm turning my head now 52 times a minute this way. So... I don't see a lot of what's going on me, and so I am in my own thoughts. And it's not just after, you know, 40, 50 hours. After 10, 11, 12 hours, you're up with Stephen Hawking, you know, 
and the meaning of the universe and the billions of stars and you're rifling through your life's memories on automatic. And so I developed a series of counting progressions in different languages and a series of songs. I had a playlist of 85 songs. They're the songs that engage me, that I'm willing to dive into, let's say, a thousand repetitions of one song, not only to pass the time, but to count time. You've got this automatic metronome that's been grooved in for years. So if I take a song like Janis Joplin's version of Me and Bobby McGee, If I take that song and I'm out there and I sing it a thousand times in a row and never lose count all the way, I'm actually busted flat in Baton Rouge, waiting for a train, feeling about as faded as my jeans. All the way to the end. La, 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 la. La 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 Hey 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 Bobby McGee Busted flat in Baton Rouge. So a thousand Bobby McGee's get me to nine hours and 45 minutes to the second. So that's what I'm doing out there. And you know, back when I was 28 years old, I was uh, cocky and brash, and I walked down to that Cuban shore like, yeah, nobody else has done this, but get out of the way. Here I come, 42 hours of rough, rough, rugged weather, sharks, jellyfish, everything that's out there. At that time, 41 hours, 49 minutes, my head trainer called me over and she was crying. The navigator was crying and they said, there's no more land reachable. Even the dry Tortugas, the Marquesas Islands, we can't make it. We've gone so far offshore with unpredictable currents and horrible winds that weren't predictable either. And I had to give that dream away. And you know, it never was for me, Cuba, about another notch in the athletic belt. It wasn't about a Hall of Fame record, a moment of superior endurance achievement. It never was. It was always about that beautiful star. Something may be impossible. These two nations forbidden until quite recently. That I would swim and swim to my homeland. The place where I grew up and saw that land somewhere out there. It meant to me, you'd have to tap down to every ounce of potential that's in you and everybody around you the same. It was living large to me. Cuba. That was 1978, 1979. Our visas were declined. We couldn't get there. After training the whole year, we switched the swim to the Bahamas. And I'm proud of that swim. Believe me, it was 102.5 miles from the island of Bimini to the shore of Florida. But it wasn't the heart swim that was Cuba. And now I couldn't get back in again in 1980, and now the wide world of sports was calling. And, you know, since I was a kid, I wanted to say the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat (laughs) on the air. 
It's maybe the tragedy of sports that we do at a world-class level, retire young, and maybe never to tap into that well of talent again, never to feel that passion again. So I was 30, Cuba was not possible, and I did leave the dream behind. Now, how am I going to complain? For the next 30 years, I worked for Wide World and Fox Sports and National Public Radio, following the best in the world, around the world, pursuing their excellence. It was constantly an inspiring life. The very first event I was assigned for Wide World was the Duke Kahanamuku Surfing Championships on the north shore of Oahu in December. And if you've ever been out there in winter, you know that those are the waves that build up most days. They're in the 20 to 25-foot range, huge dangerous waves. And occasionally they bump up into that 55, 60-foot range and people from all over the world are watching and they fly in quickly. Well, the day we were there to cover this is my very first event as a broadcaster. I'm walking along on the beach. I've taken notes for four days now on the new Teflon surfboards and the interviewing geologists about the particular intricacies of the, of the coral shelves and why these waves, when they come from the Aleutian Islands and they hit that coral shelf, what jacks them up so high to 60 feet? And I am walking around, my French mother so proud of me, instead of in the iron clad tank suit, I have a beautiful French spaghetti string feminine suit on. Yes, I'm becoming an adult now. And the producer comes to me. There are 5,000 people on the beach. They've flown in from Japan, Russia, everywhere with cameras to observe this freak of nature day. And my producer's from Brooklyn. He knows nothing whatsoever about surfing. He's a baseball guy. He comes to me on the beach and he says, Nyad, you know, I was thinking, this is your element, am I right? The ocean. We have these incredible new microphones. Waterproof all the way. Now, Nyad, I'm not telling you you have to do this. You can say no. But what if you were out there in your milieu talking to these guys like womano to mano about the ocean? I want to win an Emmy. It's my first event, and 10 minutes later, I'm on a surfboard. I'm paddling out, and I'm thinking, Emmy. Now, if you've been there, you know in those just the very first reaches offshore, you're already in six, seven, eight-foot waves. It's just, it's powerful and it's rough and I'm constantly being thrown off the board. I've got a leash on my ankle. I'm pulling back in. But that bathing suit, it's just down to the waist all the time. Now, first of all, how am I going to win an Emmy without the microphone? So I'm struggling to get it back on and get it situated, and I'm back out, and now I'm in the lull. And this is good, pithy stuff. I'm paddling over, straddling my board, talking to the South African guy. Only five men in the world, no women, will go out in this stuff at that era. And I did not even tow in. They just paddle right into these waves. And I'm saying to him, don't you get the fear of God in your heart? When you see a 60-foot wall, a mountain of white water 
curdling and the sound is deafening coming your way, absolutely oblivious that I myself am going to be facing a 60-foot mountain of crushing white water. And now I'm over here with the Australian guy, and he's given me some good, deep stuff about the meaning of life. And he says, it comes a set, and they start paddling that way. And I, my pulse goes up to around 220. And I get rid of the board, because that's going to kill me. And I start taking some deep breaths of oxygen. All I can picture is, I just interviewed that geologist, and I picture the reefs underneath, and, you know, I'm, I'm going to wind up paralyzed or, or dead. And I get swept up in the first wave, and I'm being tossed around wildly like, a, like an eggshell in a milkshake blender. And I'm worried I won't even have enough oxygen to make it through being in the midst of this wave. And I come crashing down thinking to myself, just land, pop up as shallow as you can, as fast as you can. And I do. And I'm breathing. And I'm telling you, that bathing suit. <laughs> you, you couldn't time it, it happened so fast. It just, it just, <laughs> off the ankles. <laughs> and that bathing suit went to Kauai. <laughs> and I didn't care. Because these waves come in sets of three. And I see the next one is already rising and building, so I'm trying to compose myself. I've decided to take this one in the tuck position because I didn't think the layout worked out that well for me the first time. And sure enough, I get dragged up into it and I'm spinning around. Now, you have to remember at this time, ABC was considered the leader in sports television. They have cameras in scaffolding on the tops of condominium buildings. They have cameras and helicopters above to get all the angles of the surfers' bodies. I make it through the third one, and now, as I said, you never, even when you get you know, in close to shore, you, you don't get to call out to someone on the beach and say, ma'am, I'm sorry, could you bring me a towel? No, you're just thrown up on the beach, buns up in the air. I looked over here as the cameraman closest by, sheets of tears coming down his face. 5,000 people and no one can bring me a towel. Yeah, it was funny. I laid there for 12 or 13 minutes and finally I see the sneakers. It's the Brooklyn producer. My ad. You know why you're going to make it in this business, Nyad? Because no is not a part of your vocabulary. So there I was, age 30 to 60, Olympic Games and U.S. Open Tennis Championships and Super Bowls. And I did keep my eye on Cuba. And I like to think of myself as a sporting person. I do. But every time someone would try 
and not be hurt but fail. I'd be doing a little happy dance at home. The dream is still alive. And you know, toward the end of that 30-year period, toward turning 60, I started to feel the malaise of a spectator. As I said, I wouldn't complain. What a way to make a living. But I was always chasing after other people, chasing their dreams. And you can imagine the remarkable people I had met, the athletes and the other announcers and the people of the world. But the bravest soul I ever met was Christopher Reeve. Chris became a quadriplegic in a heartbeat when he fell from his horse. Talk about being relegated to the final role of spectator. And so we would talk. We'd talk about sports and regrets. He was very big on counseling people about not leaving any regrets because you don't know what the next moment's going to bring. And he loved the issue, the theme of what does an athlete, because you do have to retire young, take what of that champion spirit that made you the best in the world, what do you take over into the grays, the not-so-black-and-white world of sports, into the rest of your life? And I told him that story of the cigarette boat driver and that he felt so alive and alert. And then Chris said to me, you know, we're always talking about these other athletes, but you've never told me your story, your athlete's story. So I told him a few things, and I told him that fingernail story, and he loved that story. And when I was done, he stared at me with those steely blues of his. He was still Superman to me. And he said, well, you know what the clear question is. You said the day you walked out of that locker room as a teenager, you were going to live every day of your life, win or lose, not a fingernail better, no regrets. So now I'm asking you, it's a lot of years later, you're not the professional athlete anymore. Is that the way you've been going about your life? And I said, well, I I, I know you take regrets seriously, so can I think about it and and get back to you on it? (laughs) And we never did speak again. Chris passed away. And then my mom passed away. Dors bien, maman. And then I turned 60. And I was just whacked upside the head with existential angst. (laughs) Am I the person I can admire? My mom died at 82. Will that be about the same for me? I have 22 scant years of this precious life left. You know how fast 22 years go by. You blink. There's another decade. And I was just grappling, looking in the mirror every day. What am I going to do? Who am I? And I was throwing that wonderful line of the poet Mary Oliver's out at myself every day. I don't know if you know it, but she asks, so tell me, what is it you're doing with this one wild and precious life of yours? And I was driving my car one day, and I had to pull over the side of the road. I started hyperventilating, and I thought, I didn't ever think the dream would come back to me, not for real. Cuba. Cuba was what I said made me feel living large. 
having to be the best I can be, I'm going to go back and chase that dream. Will the shoulders be there? Will the will be there? Will anybody care about it? And I started training, and it was tough. I was in good shape all those 30 years, but not a swimmer. And translating that back over the water was not successful that first three, four, five months. But slowly but surely, the body started to come back. I could feel the heart and the will was still there. My team started to develop a lot of them from back in the 70s and I tried and I failed box jellyfish and I tried again and I failed 50 mile an hour winds 360 degrees on the compass blowing us over capsizing our boats dangerous out in the middle of nowhere no coast guard no rescue possible and I tried it again so now I failed four times and the whole world stamped this event absolutely impossible. Dr. Timothy Noakes, who's considered the the top sports scientist today, University of Cape Town, South Africa, he had helped our team so much. He taught my main handler, Bonnie, my closest friend, to feed me real foods, real handfuls of pasta, rather than compressed goos and gels, which are okay for a, a shorter distance, like a marathon, but not something out here. And I'd come to the side of the boat, and Bonnie would take handfuls of pasta, and I'd just open my mouth, and she'd drop them in. I'm telling you, there's a job waiting for me at SeaWorld. <laughs> right now. We learned a lot from Tim, but before this fifth attempt, when he knew I was going to go again, he wrote me kind of a Dear John letter. And he said, Diane, I I admire you, and it's valiant. It seems that you're going to be trying this until you're 90, but I can give you the empirical data why to be immersed in a liquid colder than your body temperature for two and a half days, to try to digest in the supine position when almost all of that nutrition is going into empty spaces instead of into your digestive tract for your muscles to use, for the glycogen deprivation, for the, for the sensory deprivation itself, this swim will never be done by anybody. CNN the New York Times, all the media that had been very inspired by the story and had put it out worldwide for four years now, they all wrote and said, if you ever make it to the other side, we'll be there. But we just can't spend any more time and resources on chasing your truly impossible but beautiful dream. Even members of my team at meetings would raise their hands and say, Have you seen Guam this time of year? Just beautiful, really. But I wrote a letter, and I sent it to all of them. And I said, I thank you. I've learned so much from all of you. Your respect has meant a lot to me. But you're all forgetting the most important element of this endeavor, of any endeavor any of us ever do, and that's the power of the human spirit. And so we put it together for a fifth time. And the only conundrum was that my buddy, Bonnie, my lifeline, the rock of the team, 44-person team, and Bonnie, the rock, she said to me, I don't want to go. I almost watch you die out there, so close to dying, and I was helpless. And I'll tell you the truth, I don't want to fail again. I don't want to motor into that dock in Key West 
down and crushed again. If anybody could have done this swim, Diana, it would have been you. It just can't be done. And I said, you know, Bonnie, for me it goes back to that old debate of the journey and the destination. Yes, ironically, the catch-22 is you wouldn't have even taken the journey if the destination hadn't been dangling out there in front of you. But in the end, it is the journey. I am thrilled by the journey of discovery and science and friendship and history and extreme character that we've taken without the destination. Right now, for me, it's not even so much about making it anymore. It's about not giving up on it. That's how beautiful, how worthy, how noble this dream is to me. And it's been that to you so far. I had dragged out that last year for training that old Teddy Roosevelt quote. You guys probably know it, but to paraphrase it, something like, you go ahead. You sit in your comfortable armchair and you criticize and you analyze while this guy is up here getting bloodied and getting dirtied and falling and failing over and over again. Tessie Roosevelt says, I'd rather be that guy. I don't want to be a timid soul living a cold life where I don't even know what failure is. Then how will I ever know what success is? I want to take a risk. I'm going to dare greatly and be in the ring even if I fail. And Bonnie heard that speech and she said, I'm all in. So there we were a fifth time over 35 years looking out at that elusive horizon, knowing more than we ever did about what lies out there. It's a vast, epic, dangerous wilderness. But we're a smart team, we're prepared, and we refuse to be timid and not try again. Bonnie grabs my shoulders and she says, let's find a way. That first day was glorious. The sun was out, the wind clocked around to the back and we were actually getting a little bit of aid. I was singing my songs. The navigator was on deck during my feedings telling me what good progress we were making. That first night was hell on earth. I had a prosthetist make a mask for me to protect my face from the jellyfish and that mask, now it got bumpy that night and the wind came back around from the southeast and I was swallowing waves of salt water. Now your hands have lost their tensile strength and you're numb so to try to peel the mask up and get the retainers off the teeth and empty the vomit out and get it all back on again. It was a rough night. And that next day, the second day, Bonnie called me in constantly to the station, more than the usual 90-minute stops for feedings, where, again, you don't touch the boat, but you tread water and take down drinks. But I had lost so much weight that night and was now having to get ready for the next night that they wanted me to feed off in that day. I had cuts and lacerations deep all into the interior of the mouth because of the mask, but I wouldn't have gone back a fifth time without the mask. Now we come into the second night, if it's possible... It was more hellish than the first night. I had lost so much body tissue that now I was cold when you shouldn't be cold yet, and I was forgetting where we were at one point. I thought right under me here, and I kept looking. I didn't say anything to Bonnie. I, I thought I saw the yellow brick road. <laughs> and I was confused because as I would swim and, and look down, they were way under. It was distant and faint, but I, I could see that it wasn't Dorothy and the Tin Man and those people. It was the seven dwarfs. 
And they were trudging along with their backpacks. And finally, I just stopped for a second. I said, Bonnie, do you see the yellow brick road and the seven dwarfs under here? She peered over and looked down and she said, oh, yeah, I see them. Yeah. And she said, you know, the great thing about them is they're going right where you're going. So you just follow them for a while. I can't tell you how helpful they were. I followed them for hours. And, you know, I breathed to the left so my right ear would dip down this way a little bit. And I could hear them faintly singing and whistling. Hi-ho, hi-ho, it's off to work we go. And then they left me. I was in trouble, hanging on by a thread in the middle of the night. I forgot where we were. I forgot who I was. I forgot what we were doing. I wasn't even swimming anymore. I was barely feathering and shivering, and Bonnie blew the whistle. Signal, you come here. I don't care what you're feeling, what you're doing. You get over to the boat. So my dog paddled over slowly. I couldn't see her. I just heard the whistle. And I stopped here, and she said, listen to me. Listen to me. Pull your cap up above your ears. And I thought, she never tells me that. Put your goggles up on your forehead. She never tells me that unless it's bad news. I've heard that four times before. Put your goggles up. Get your cap up. We need to talk to you. We're heading to the Bahamas. We have a hundred more hours. We're not making it. We haven't told you, but things have gone awry. And I was down. She said, no, 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 no. Listen to me. Face this way. Lurch up a little bit and tell me what you see. And I said, oh. The sun's coming up. I'm going to be able to take all the jellyfish gear off at daylight. The sun's rays are going to warm my body. i got to last until first light. And she said, no. And she was crying now. It's better than the sun. I said, what could be better than the sun? <laughs> she said, those are the lights of Key West. Yeah. And that was the vision for 35 years that I wouldn't let go of, that I believed in. About two hours from the end, now broad daylight, I asked my semicircle of boats, my 44-person team, to come make a semicircle around me here. And I cried like a baby. And I said to them, I guess I'm going to stumble up on that beach pretty soon. And I guess somebody's going to take my picture. But don't you ever forget, we did this together. I wished I had known the term then, but I would have said to them, we masterminded history. You know, it's, it's been almost two years now since I did stumble up onto that beach. It'll be Labor Day this year, two years. And I'll tell you, what I've been living out loud since that triumphant moment isn't so much the victory on the beach and so much, how can I tell you, how I've been humbled since that moment. I've been awarded a 
book contract and that book comes out in the fall, find a way, and I believe it's going to inspire millions of people. It's my time. We went back to Cuba last year on the year anniversary, and for the first time in 30 years, the Cuban and American flags were flown together in Fidel's National Palace. And now for us, my team, to see what's happening, the rapprochement between Cuba and Florida, we like to think that we were just a little of a gesture toward that reconciliation. Um, I've had a chance to meet with President Obama in the Oval Office. Bonnie and I are going to walk cross-country next year, the Pacific to the Atlantic, and we're going to get a million people to walk with us, a million, to make a statement about our sedentary society. Let's just get up and walk. But what I've been living this last two years is sort of summed up in that wonderful Henry David Thoreau quote. And he says, when you achieve your dreams, it's not so much what you get, it's who you become. I stand before you today, a person who has not succeeded in everything I've done. But I'll tell you something, I refuse, have refused, and will refuse to go about any day other than all in. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Woo! Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Woo! Wow, that was awesome stuff. And as you can tell, standing ovation, not a dry eye in the house. Great stuff, Diana. Love you and your message. And if you want more of Diana Nyad, I mean, she has a a website worth checking out. There's a biography called Find a Way, which is just a fabulous read. And Diana's also spearheading something that I think is very powerful. It's called Everwalk. Everwalk is a movement with the goal to inspire Americans to get out from behind their screens and to become a nation of walkers. And so millions of people have committed to walking on a regular basis as a part of this. It's absolutely fantastic. Go to everwalk.com. Go check it out. It's great inspiration. It's great encouragement to get out there and move your body. As you can see, Diana's still inspiring people today. Now she's gone from inspiring people on the water to inspiring people on land. So I hope you'll check out her website. And again, I hope you enjoyed this broadcast today. Don't forget to leave us a review. If this is the kind of programming you enjoy, please let us know. I have a bunch more where this came from. A bunch of relationships of people who are speaking for us now, interviews that I can do, and people who've presented for us in the past. Just let me know if you like it or not. If you want more of this, we'll give you more. Plenty where that came from. Don't forget we're also on Android, so you can download your favorite podcast app from Google Play and tune in for free. And so give us all that feedback. I love hearing the reviews, and it also helps spread the message. And that's my challenge to all of you. We don't fill your ears with sales pitches and sponsors and all the things that go on in most podcasts. We here are a service because we want to grow the message of a way to grow your mindset, motivation, and methodology in a positive way. We want to positively impact and improve your life. And all we ask of you is that if you enjoy this show, is that you share it with your family and friends colleagues, co-workers, let me know. If you know somebody who's in need of a little inspiration, a little encouragement, a little instruction, please pass on the podcast to them. So as I finish here today, 
I'll leave you with a little Irish blessing that when I shared it from stage, it brought a tear to Diana's eye because she comes from a European background, as she said herself. May the roads rise up to meet you. May the wind always be at your back. May the rain fall soft upon your fields and the sunshine warm upon your face, even if you're swimming a long way. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the hollow of his hand.